Building a startup from scratch is tough. My name is Justin McLeod, and I'm your host for a new podcast series called Back to the Basics. In this show, I'll be talking to startup experts as they discuss the fundamentals of launching and running your first tech startup. But there's also nothing wrong with having a 5, 10, 15, $20 million a year company that's kicking off 10 or 15% profit, right? That's still life-changing money. The way you go about building that company is a little bit different. There's a common misconception in the startup world that you need to raise venture capital in order to start a company. In this episode, I sit down with Jermaine Brown, the founder of CCAW Automotive Group, who decided to take another route in funding his startup by generating $11 million from paying customers without raising any venture capital. Jermaine will share tips on how to find product market fit, setting key milestones, and how to bootstrap your startup from scratch. Enjoy the show. Went to LSU for undergrad, finished in finance, uh, transitioned to corporate America, working at, it was called Ernst Young at the time, they call it EY, and they'll probably call it something else pretty soon as well. Uh, did the travel and consultant thing for a number of years, uh, peeked behind the curtains of a lot of really large corporations, just helping them identify problems and fix those problems, come up with a solution to fix those problems and implement those solutions. Uh, across their business in various cities. So did that for a while, got a little burnt out of the travel, uh, was always a car person. Um, as a kid in high school and college, that was always my passion, my hobby. And I decided to kind of take the leap into entrepreneurship and try to see if I can combine some of the things I learned in corporate America uh, with my passion to try to see if I can build a business around it. So uh, founded CCAW Automotive Group around 2007, 8-ish, um, and transitioned to that full-time 2008-ish. Uh, we were an e-commerce seller. We focused on selling um, aftermarket automotive parts to consumers. Uh, we did it in a unique way where we didn't hold inventory, and we focused on building a technology platform that basically allowed us to aggregate uh, inventory from multiple distributors, um, leverage their existing uh, distribution infrastructure and get those products to consumers in an efficient way. So uh, long story short, we built a technology platform on top of the Salesforce platform that allowed us to do that. Uh, scaled that company up to about 11 million in revenue. Um, so pretty big. And then uh, we had a couple things happen uh, with tariffs and things of that nature that that changed the landscape a little bit for us and so uh while on that we're on the operational side of that company now and now i'm spending some time um mentoring and working with other entrepreneurs and just getting a little bit of downtime happy to kind of tell my story answer questions and hopefully you guys learn from some of my experiences um well cool man i think we can um i'm saying kind of just jump into you know some of the questions um just as being you know a bootstrap founder, uh, just a founder of color as well. Um, I guess first and foremost, um, you know, one of my questions were, um, you know, when you first started out, you know, like how did you, you know, how did you know you found like product market fit? I know you said that you like, you know, cars, you like automotives. Um, what was that? Um, I guess that idea that popped in your head was like, hey, I can actually turn what I, my passion or what I like into actually like a business. Some of my time working with um, some of the distributors and vendors that I had relationships with 
in college and just kind of understanding some of their pain points, you know, connecting some of the dots with some of the things I learned in corporate America. And I kind of really had an aha moment that was like, hey, you know, this industry is antiquated and um, they have things that people want, but they haven't figured out how to communicate that these things are available. Um, so what I did was I just kind of brokered some deals with some of these vendors. And then uh, once I had some of those deals in place, you know, I just had to go out and figure out if there was actually demand with customers. So it was really crude at first. What I did was basically go to message boards, um, automotive forums and things like that and say, hey, you know, here's some of the things that I have access to. Are any, is anyone on this form interested in purchasing these items, right? So very, very, very basic, very, very, very crude. But once I was able to get some traction and, and get some responses from people saying, hey, yeah, I am interested in these things. You know, by the way, I'm interested in these other types of things as well. I started to be like, okay, I've got something going on here. I just need to figure out um, some of the nuances and then um, later on how to, how to scale it in an efficient way. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, talk, you know, we've been talking the past couple of weeks about uh, finding like the right channel, distributing uh, product. And so what made, I guess, forum something um, that you decided to kind of like go with rather than, you know, I don't know what's big in 08 was, Social media wasn't that big in 08, but uh, what made you want to go with like, you know, forums and yeah, what made you want to go with that, that channel? Or was trying to figure out, okay, where does demand already exist at, right? Where are the types of people that I'm going after? Where are they already spending their time, right? And so I was kind of going after automotive enthusiasts, people that are really passionate about automotive. So I said, all right, let me try to figure out if I can find these guys online, right? And what I ended up finding was like the message boards and the forums were very specific to uh, type, like vehicle brands, right? So there's a BMW form, there's a Mercedes form, there's a Lexus form, there's this form, right? So the people are already there, right? And so I knew that I had a captive audience and I would be able to know very quickly if what I thought was true or not. I was able to validate what I thought very quickly. And then how did you go about, I guess, um, after you, you kind of validated, you know, asked the form like, hey, you know, um, you know, we're looking, you know, would you all be willing to buy parts? Like, how did you, what was that next step, you know, in regards to like actually, um, you know, getting that first sale, getting that first customer, like, hey, like, I actually have a, a customer. <laughs> what was that like? Um, honestly, it was pretty crude and pretty ugly, right? You know, it was, uh, let me try to figure out how to take your money or receive payment, and then I'll just have to figure everything out from there, right? And so to be 100% transparent, when I first got the first customer, I was actually still working in corporate America, right? And I was flying around every week, right? I was flying out on Mondays, flying back to Atlanta on Thursday nights or Fridays, right? So... Um, it was a little bit of trial and error, but I said, all right, let me try to figure out some of these online payment platforms and methods, right? You know, there was a learning curve there. And then from there, I said, all right, I got that part down. Now I just need to figure out how to get these, these things from point A to point B, right? So that means going to, I literally went in my work attire to a, a, a distributor, a warehouse, acquired the products after I had the customer's money. And then figured out, you know, via UPS, you know, how to actually get it to the customer, right? So it was very manual and it was, you know, just a learning experience, like trying to fill my knowledge gap and try to, you know, figure out what I didn't know, right? So, right. so um, once that transaction, transaction I learned some things.
I made some adjustments and, you know, we just kind of rinsed, washed and repeated, right? Many, many, many times over. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. I mean, you know, kind of just, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's instant validation that somebody's going to pay, pay for something before, you know, they actually kind of see it like exactly. a website or a product. Exactly. And that means that, you know, that's, that's a need is there. And um, that's awesome, man. So after that, you know, you got, so you got your first, you know, customer. Now, how, now, what was the process in regards to refining that process so it's, like, repeatable? So then you not only have one one customer, you get to, like, you know, first 10 to 50 to, like, 100 people that's, like, paying for this, you know? Yeah, so um, it was a little bit of a challenge. It took a little bit of time to kind of figure that out, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, we were able to get customers on on an ongoing basis over time, but it was very kind of stop and start for a little bit. Um, what we basically did was kind of stick to the model of forms and things of that nature, trying to figure out like, all right, what kind of things do these people really want, right? But what we eventually figured out was that that is a niche audience, right? And their desire to acquire products is not consistent, right? Because it's not a big enough audience, right? So eventually what, what I did was I said, all right, let me try to find other avenues, other channels where we can find more consistent sources of customers, right? So you've got Craigslist, eBay, all these other places where customers were at at the time. And then we tried to do a lot of testing there, right? Um, once we got more customers, what I did was I just tried to take the process that we had and try to formalize it and add more structure to it, right? Like, hey, this is kind of, how it needs to happen for it to be consistent. Um, brought on, a, you know, one helpers or one you know, team member as well to kind of help execute some of those things. And what ends up happening when you bring somebody else on um, is typically you're forced to kind of take all the things out of your head, you know, formalize them in some kind of documentation or something, hopefully that you can use to train that person. And then you begin to have the beginnings of a consistent process that you can then start to refine over time as you learn more and more things. So I guess to kind of get into just, um, you know, after you, so you, 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 you know, validated, you know, the assumptions that you had, you got, you brought on those uh, paying customers, um, you know, as far so are you a technical funder or non-technical? I'm not technical. Okay. So how did you go about, so, you know, building that, that product on top of a sales forces, um, you know, thing. And then I know you, you didn't raise any capital at the time. So like, how, how was that process? <laughs> like not raising capital and still building something. Yeah, so I'm gonna take a step back a little bit um, and, and, and not answer it, but eventually come back to answering it, right? So I was not a technical person. I am not a technical person by training. I've learned some things over time through trial and error and having to work with technical teams, right? But what really forced, well, let me take a step back. When I initially started the company, one of my, the big things that I didn't do was take a step back and think about like where I wanted the company to be in the future. Um, like most really young founders, I was starting with like very small milestones, right? Like, hey, I wanna replace my salary. Hey, I wanna replace my salary and turn a profit. Hey, I wanna be able to hire an employee. You know, I wanna get to half a million in revenue. I wanna get to a million in revenue. And I think when we were somewhere between that one and $2 million in revenue, um, increment or, or time frame. This was the first time I was able to take a step back and really be like, okay, where do I really want this company to go? 
And uh, I think I set a milestone of like 11 or $12 million, either 11 or 12 or 10 or 11. That was kind of the goal, right? And so for the first time in years, I really had this big goal that I was like, all right, I need to come up with a strategy to actually hit this as compared to just these small intermediate milestones, right? When I did that, it changed the game completely because what I realized was that, okay, I can't hit that goal um, by myself. Like I need some to scale the, the team up. I need some technology. Like I need all these things that I can't do myself. So I need to go out and recruit, right? So um, one of the things that we ran the analysis of how we, how we, how I looked at, you know, 11, $12 million was like, I can't remember the exact numbers, but you know, it was essentially like a million dollars a month um, in revenue. And uh, it's like 30 or 40,000 a, a, a 30,000 a day. It was some kind of number where it was like, wow, that's a lot of orders every day. And we were very manual at that time. And I was like, we can't scale these manual processes. We can't just throw, we just can't throw bodies at it, right? So I was like, okay, now I really need to investigate some type of technology that allow us to kind of um, grow and scale and have consistent execution of our processes, right? Well, went out, researched a lot of technology platforms. None of them did exactly what we needed them to do because our model was so unique, right? You know, most of them will come like 60% close and then they would charge us like, hey, we'll charge you a quarter million to half a million dollars to customize it to do what you want it to do. But it'll never be 100%. It'll probably get to like 85 or 80%, right? And so after kind of having multiple conversations like that with SAP and NetSuite and all these other companies, I was like, yeah, we just gonna have to figure out how to build this, right? So that's when I started looking to try to recruit some technical um, talent, like some senior technical talent. And um, what ended up happening was I ended up finding somebody that, was ex that is experienced. I had, I had identified the platform that I wanted to use um, and it was Salesforce. And if you're not familiar with it, Salesforce has a product. Um, it's basically like platform as a service is what the concept is called. But basically, you know, you can build applications on top of their platform um, and you can iterate and deploy stuff really quickly, but you don't have the cost of maintaining uh, the infrastructure and all these other things, right? So you basically pay to use their platform. You can build custom stuff on top of it. So I know I wanted to do that. I had done my research. And I went out and found a senior technical person who was experienced in doing that and who can basically bring some expertise and some wisdom to what we were doing. And I could paint the picture for, hey, this is what I want this system to be able to do when it's all said and done. And they could fill in the minutiae and the gaps with their wisdom and experience and say, okay, we should go this direction to get to where you want to get to, right? So that was the approach I took. Um, in hindsight, you know, um, if I had painted a, a, a big picture earlier in my career or earlier in this entrepreneurial journey, we probably would have raised capital. Um, but by the time we were at one or two million in revenue, you know, we were cash flow positive. You know, this was not a, a, a startup where we were lighting money on fire. Like this was a profitable company, right? Um, so, you know, I just decided to continue doing it with cash flows. Uh, bootstrapping with cash flows does make things a lot more difficult. You do have a stop and start kind of situation going on where you know you're able to execute and invest in your growth plan only when the cash flow or the make account allows as compared to having a lump sum of money in the bank having a plan having a team and having the resources to just execute on that plan right so uh, bootstrap and i tell people um you know it's not for everybody nor is raising venture capital but the first thing that i 
would encourage entrepreneurs to do is to really take a step back once you've kind of got a little bit of product market fit and to think about, okay, how big and where do you think this, you want this to go? And then, you know, validate it, right? Like, I don't, you know, you shouldn't come in and be like, I want a hundred billion dollars in revenue, right? That's like Walmart numbers. It took them like 40 years to get there, right? Um, and most businesses won't support that, right? But, you know, maybe you found a niche or maybe you found some kind of company where, hey, you know, 100 million in revenue, 50 million in revenue is doable, right? Um, and then once you kind of set those goals and crystallize them and validate them, right? Like, hey, I want to get to 100 million in revenue. I want to get to 200 million in revenue. Now you can work backwards to figure out what path and what funding source that makes the right sense, makes the most sense, right? If you do research, you realize, hey, you know, this company realistically in Atlanta probably will only get to 5 million or 10 million in revenue, which is a nice sizable company that can kick off a nice amount of profit to a founder. That's, that's good. Right. But that's probably not going to be a venture backable company. Right. And that's okay. Right. But sitting down and setting um, your, figuring out what your destination is and making sure it's realistic and then working backwards based upon your decisions it's probably the best piece of advice that I would tell um, founders. And if you don't know how to do that, you know, go seek out people that can help you um, do that and put that in place. But, you know, I would not recommend doing it the way I did it where we just were setting a bunch of intermediate goals. And again, this was a long time ago too. So the startup ecosystem wasn't there. All this information wasn't really available on the internet. Like, all, like being a founder and having a startup wasn't cool back then. Everybody thought I was crazy actually. So it's, the, the things are very different. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. And um, it, it's two things that um, I kind of picked up from, from your story was one of, the, one of the things was that you built on top of like an existing platform. Yep. Um, and rather than kind of like building, you know, you have an idea and then you kind of build it from scratch. That's kind of, you know, a little bit, you know, harder, you know, in that sense. And so would you say that that's... Um, a good suggestion for founders who are like just starting off to like kind of capitalize on um, existing audiences or existing platforms or um, or they can just go either route in regards to like starting from scratch or getting getting their customers essentially. Okay, and you're asking from the perspective of building their own technology, or I want to make sure I answer the question correctly. Yeah, just um, in regards to like getting your your paying customers. So I know that you said that. Um, you know, you started off with the forums in regards to getting it, but you wanted to kind of scale up and, you know, more, you know, more customers. So you, instead of kind of um, going doing it independently, you basically built a, on top of a product on top of an existing platform that helped you get to that, you know, million dollar mark. Um, yeah. In regards to just, I guess, any suggestions in regards to like, if you've seen any founders or, or, or these first time, like, you know, getting that initial you know, traction where you're getting the, the, that first 100, but then like that scaling point, um, like how does you kind of like approach that essentially? Yeah, 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 I can answer that. So I'll answer that in two different ways. So one is um, through customer acquisition and how you go about doing that. And the other way I answer it is uh, building technology. So um, customer acquisition, I think um, using another platform and leveraging their audience, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Um, I think it's a capital efficient way to go about doing things. So, you know, I will take like a Instagram or Facebook or something like that. Like, you know, you can advertise and acquire customers that way. I think it's good to, I think it's a good capital efficient way off to start. 
um, and to allow you to get product market fit, right? However, once you get product market fit, I would strongly advise founders to then shift direction to figure out how you can have control over the customer experience and the customer relationship, right? Like how can you make those customers um, your own audience, right? Like you're not relying on another platform to actually send those customers to you, right? And the reason I say that is because it's very difficult to scale a company on top of another platform because those other platforms can make changes um, that are in their best interest, but might, might not necessarily be in your best interest. And you also have no visibility into what's actually working or how they're actually acquiring those customers, right? So in order to build a repeatable customer acquisition machine, you need to have insights into various variables and data points and things of that nature to be able to predictably scale the company. So in short, yes, yeah, start off, it's cheap. It's, it, you, get, you can test really quickly, but once you think you got product market fit, shift course to figure out like, okay, how do I own the customer acquisition uh, strategy, right? Um, and on the technology side, you know, leveraging another platform, they call it PAAS, so platform as a service. So there's a lot of um, platform as a service um, providers out there now where you can kind of build your technology on top of those. So I think, again, very cost efficient way to get started. A lot of these platform as a service providers have their own ecosystems where you can go out and find uh, technical talent that's very experienced and um, you don't have to worry about kind of being left out if your developer leaves, right? There's enough people in these ecosystems so that, you know, they can kind of pick up on what you built and kind of take it and run with it, right? Um, the one caveat I would say is that, you know, it depends upon what your business is. So in our particular situation, we sold products to customers, right? Automotive products. That's how we generate our revenue from selling products. So our technology was built to enable us to be able to do that more efficiently. If I was actually selling the technology and that was my product and that's how I generated my revenue, I think, yes, it's probably okay to start on one of these uh, platform as a, as a service providers. But again, once you get product market fit or some kind of predefined inflection point, you need to figure out how to um, start building this technology in-house and so you can own all your IP. The thing about a, a platform as a service provider is that you would never completely own your intellectual property. If you stop paying for the licenses, all your code just kind of goes away, right? So it makes sense if you want to get started in an efficient way and you don't have the money uh, to be able to pay a team to support the underlying infrastructure and all these other things, which you need to do, it's fine, right? But have a predefined uh, inflection point where you say, hey, once we get here, we're going to start working on building our own technology and migrating our customers to our own technology where we own our own IP. Because if you scale it, when you don't own the IP, and you want to sell it, you will automatically take a huge haircut on what the company's worth in the valuation because you don't own the IP 100%. And um, you also uh, just kind of hit on uh, setting those goals in the beginning. Um, you know, I know some of the founders in, in the previous program, I, I talked to them about um, just kind of three different ways about, you know, thinking of a startup that's like, if you want to um, get acquired, go IPO, or, you know, have a lifestyle type of business. Um, and, you know, bootstrap is kind of falls under that like lifestyle type of business. Um, so, I guess with that being said, like, what would you say to like first time founders in regards to like setting their goals? Because 
past two weeks, we are in our go-to-market session. Um, we had like a diagram that showed like how to get to $100 million in, in you know, revenue. And it's either you get like 10 wells that are you, you which are, you know, $10 million uh, customers, or you can get a hundred million like thingies, you know? <laughs> so basically a hundred million users. So in regards to just um, kind of moving it back to the question is um, setting those initial goals and kind of just working backwards, like how, how important is that? It's um, kind of starting from, from scratch. Um, you know, this is my philosophy. You know, I encourage founders to get input and perspectives and philosophies from other credible entrepreneurs, right? Um, but don't just take what I say. It's kind of like the gospel, right? It's just my opinion, right? Um, but to answer your question, I think, you know, I feel like you can't hit what you can't see, right? So unless you define where you want to go and where you want to be, it's probably a 2% chance you ever make it there or you ever be there, right? So at some point you have to sit down and even if it's high level, it doesn't have to be super, um, super detailed, right? But just high level, like this is where I want to get, right? This is what I'm thinking, right? And like I said earlier, I would uh, do some research on the market, you know, your industry, and just see if your assumptions are, you know, grounded in reality, right? You know, if you do some research and you figure out that your space is a $100 million um, total market, and you say you want to build a $100 million in revenue company, that means you're going to completely own the market. That's probably not realistic, right? So make sure your assumptions and kind of what you're aiming for are grounded in, in some sort of reality. And again, if you don't know how to do that, you know, reach out to people, right? There's enough people, there's enough resources, there's enough information on the on, online to kind of figure out how to do that, right? Uh, but once you kind of figure out where you want to be validated and it's grounded in reality, you know, I think you then have to sit down and kind of figure out, okay, what's my timeline to get here? Is this a, you know, 12 month thing? Is this a 12 year thing? Like, you know, how long am I trying to get here? How long am I trying to take to get here, right? Um, in that equation of figuring out how long you want to take to do it, um, you know, you got to consider, you know, personal stuff, right? The faster you want to get there, the more of your life you're going to give up. It's just the way it works. <laughs> it's no way around it. Um, and then also, you know, the faster you want to get there, the more capital it's going to take as well. Right. So those are things that you need to kind of figure out when kind of coming up with that, that time frame. And then the last thing is just market timing as well. Right. You know, you may come up on an opportunity where, you know, you are the first person to realize some great thing nobody understands. And you think this is going to be a big market but you want to have first mover advantage, right? So that means you need to run as far and as fast as you can, right? So that means that you need to try to figure out how to get some capital so you can execute quickly, right? You may find another idea where it's a market that already exists. Uh, you may put a little bit of a nuance and a twist on it, uh, but people are already doing it. So that first mover advantage thing is not as critical. So now you can kind of take, I'm gonna say take your time, but you can move at a place that's, a pace that's more leisurely to you, right? So come up with a timeline that you want to do it, right? You know, a year, two years, five years, and then just kind of figure out, okay, um, in order to hit this big goal or, you know, medium-sized goal, if you, if you, if you realize it's not a company that can be huge, um, how do I, how should I go about doing this, right? What's the most efficient way to do it, right? As far as capital, right? Should I raise uh, venture capital to do this? Um, you know, you need to be mindful that every company is not venture backable, you know, 
venture capitalists are looking for really big exits, really big home runs. Um, or should I do a bootstrap, right? And then bootstrap doesn't, you know, you can get creative when you bootstrap as well, right? You know, I always tell people, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with figuring out how to get your customers to prepay, right? You know, get them to pay a couple months or a year in advance. And that's a really efficient way to raise capital uh, and grow your company, right? So bootstrap doesn't mean that as a dollar comes in that day I spend it or, you know, I wait till the end of the month to see how much profit I had and then I figure out what I'm going to do the next month, right? Now, you can get creative in how you do it, right? But um, I would, you know, tell entrepreneurs that every company is not going to be a $100 million or a billion dollar company. It'd be great. And if you do have one of those ideas, I think you should go after it, you know, definitely do. But there's also nothing wrong with having a five, 10, 15, $20 million a year company that's kicking off 10 or 15% profit, right? That's still life-changing money. Uh, it's just the way you go about building that company is a little bit different than you go about building a unicorn, right? But you should be proud if you built either one of those, right? Because only 4% of companies in America ever make it to above a million dollars in revenue. So if you even hit that threshold, you're in, you are like in rare, in rare category, in rare air with other people. And you should be proud of that, right? So don't feel like you have to go billion dollar bust. Like that's a pretty common misconception in my opinion these days. Yeah, and um, and speaking of misconceptions, so what is, what are some misconceptions of um just being a boot, you know, founder? Because you know. Oftentimes you hear bootstrap, it's like, yeah, bootstrap, you know, you, you're saving all your equity in your company. Like, you know, you as a bootstrap founder, like, like what are some misconceptions about being, you know, bootstrap? Um, you know, I think that some people wear it as a badge of honor. Um, I don't know if that's right or not, you know, but I'll give you my perspective and my learnings on it. You know, I think that you have to figure out if, you have to figure out what funding method makes sense best based upon where you want to be, right? Um, one thing I will say about bootstrapping that is, is, is challenging is that when you're working off of cash flows from customers, you know, you may not be able to take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves to you, right? You know, you may need to hire two or three people. You may meet two great people that you want to hire, but you can't do it at that moment because of cash flows, right? And so you have to pass on one, hire the other one. And you know, it may take you another 24 months to find another good person that can take that role, right? So, you know, just be just 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 be mindful that you can't take advantage of opportunities and do things and execute when you want. And that that creates this kind of stop and start, you know, growth um, approach, which ultimately makes the makes your it makes the path a lot longer, right? It takes a lot more time to get to where you're trying to get to, right? So, um, but you know, bootstrapping in, in, in some situations is perfect and it makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, I think you just have to sit down with yourself, be honest, or sit down with um, people that you trust um, who have experience and, you know, let them help you figure it out and sort it out, right? It's okay to not know as an entrepreneur, it's gonna be a lot of stuff you don't know. That's actually pretty normal. You should get comfortable with that. Um, but where a lot of people fail is that they don't ask for help, right? Like, or they ask for help from people that are not credible in what they're asking for, right? It's like, you know, asking a single person, you know, how should I go about getting married? It's like, it's like the blind leading the blind, right? 
you should go ask somebody that's been married like 50 years and they're happy, right? They can tell you how to do it the right way, right? So make sure you get, um, you ask credible sources for information and don't be too proud to ask for help, right? Like you can't do it all by yourself. You're not a Superman, right? Or and um, so, you know, once they, I guess, get to a point where, you know, somebody's trying to, you know, start a gain traction and they even, you know, eventually hit the million dollar mark. Like, what, you know, at what point do you feel that some founders need to essentially, like, raise capital, you know, or if it's even, like, a time point or if it's a number point or, you know, if it's a strategy point, but like, what, what, what point do you think that's like, okay, this is the time to actually start looking for additional funds to grow, grow the business? Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's a revenue mark, because um, I think, you know, a million dollars in revenue for a software company is very different than a million dollars in revenue for a retailer, which is very different than, you know, a million dollars in revenue at a gym, right? So I wouldn't say a revenue point makes sense. I think that it's a couple of things in my mind that 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 you should use to determine it. Um, you know, like I said before, one thing is your your destination, right? Um, so if your destination is not like really far off or it's not really big, right? Then you know you probably are a pretty good pace to to, to get there, right? Um, but if you have a big goal, a big destination you want to get to, you need to be mindful of that. Um, I think the other point is when you get to a point where you um, have fit like you know some kind of product market fit or you think you've got down cold what you want to do and now you want to accelerate your growth right so you know there's going to be a period of trying to figure it out right like figure out what your customers want what they don't want um you know you kind of putting your offering together be that a product or a service you're getting some feedback and then once you kind of have that perfect mesh of like okay this is what they want this is what i have to offer and everything is clicking and everybody likes it and then say, okay, cool. Well, how far am I trying to take this? Okay, I'm trying to take this to the moon. Okay, well, you're probably gonna need some capital to to, to build a rocket ship to get you there, right? Um, but you know, if you say, hey, I just kind of want to grow it um, at a leisurely pace um, to you know a couple million or whatever the number is, right? You probably are okay doing that in a bootstrap manner, right? So I think when you get to that fit point, you know, evaluate, all right, where do I want to be, and what's the and what's the timeline to get there? And you know, if it's really far you want to go and you want to get there fast, you probably need to raise some capital. Um, then I have one more question, and I'll turn it over to uh, both of the founders. Yeah. Um, so, in a time like this, you know, in a society, and there's a lot of different things that's going on, different changes for different businesses. I know you. Um, you said like you know the terraces kind of had an effect on. Um, you know, saying your startup company. So what was some um, words of wisdom, you know, saying for, for some first time founders who are, you know, going at it full, full swing, but you know, they kind of got hit over the head with this, all this, these bombs that are happening in, in the economy. Um, so what are some, I guess, some tips that um, you usually either persevere or just, you know, as an entrepreneur or as a company as well? Yeah, so a couple of things that I would say. Um, number one, uh, surround yourself with a peer group, um, other entrepreneurs, other people that are going through similar things, right? Um, it's a lot better to learn through osmosis than actually feeling the pain yourself, right? So 
Um, for me, there was a group that I joined. Uh, their EO is uh, it's called Entrepreneurs Organization. EO is a, a global network of entrepreneurs. Every major city has a chapter, and you know they have a program called the Accelerator Program, which are which is for companies less than a million dollars trying to get to a million dollars in revenue. And you have these accountability monthly meetings that are four or five hours, right? But Everybody talks about their challenges, the things that are successful for them, and you know, just kind of sitting there learning and listening. You'll learn things from other entrepreneurs, and you'll take things from other industries that uh, are maybe best practices that you can apply to yours, right? So, surround yourself with people that are going through the same thing as you, and have some accountability there. Like, build a, a peer um, network, right? Um, other thing too, I would say is, you know, uh, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Like don't dwell on the fact that you're in the tunnel, but focus on the light at the end of the tunnel. And once you get out of it, then look back. Right. Um, but, you know, don't kind of get caught in this woe is me or, you know, like uh, a negative outlook on thing. Right. You know, just look around and just recognize that there's opportunity all over the place. Um, number number two, be thankful for the things that have gone well for you. Right. Because there's always something to be thankful for. Right. Um, but, you know, just kind of stay the course. Look for opportunities. Um, put yourself in a position where things can happen to you, right? So peer network, you know, um, meeting with people in the startup community, meeting with customers, right? Like I tell people, just if you stay around the hoop, eventually the ball will will, will come to you, right? Um, but if you get up, give, give up and walk to the bench or go to the end, other end of the court, I can guarantee you never get a chance to put the ball in, in the goal, right? So just kind of persevere. Put yourself in a position for things to happen. Be thankful and practice gratitude, right? Uh, and then surround yourself with the right people, man. Uh, right, credible people. And I think, you know, if it's meant to be, it'll be, right? But just have faith. That's awesome. Um, well, cool, man. A lot of questions that I have. Um, so I'll turn it over to Ashley and Lola. Sure. Today. <laughs> So you answered my questions. Cool. All right, Ashley, any questions that you have about just bootstrapping, entrepreneurship, building a company? Yeah, I wanted to ask, how long did it take you to get to your first million? The first million is always the hardest. Um, I'm, I mean, that's it's probably, you probably would not know that when I was looking in, but if I remember correctly, probably took us four or five years to get to our first million in revenue. And the first million is always the hardest because you're trying to figure out the business model, you're trying to figure out your process, you're trying to put a team in place. Like there's all these things that you're trying to do that once you get them done, everything becomes infinitely easier, right? Um, but that first million hands down is the hardest. And once you get to that point, um, if you've built a solid foundation, uh, it will go, the next million will, will happen a lot quicker, a lot quicker. Um, one question I had, you mentioned we a lot. Did you start with a co-founder or like how long into the business did you go if you didn't start with a co-founder before you brought somebody else in? Yeah, and I'm, I say we a lot because I always want to give my team credit for the things that were done. Um, I would not have been able to have the success that I had without uh, the support of a team, but uh, it was not, I did not have a co-founder, which is another thing that I can write a book on. 
Um, but I started by myself and essentially hired uh, people under me to execute, right? And I used to, I managed those people. It probably wasn't until five years in, uh, four or five years, maybe five years in, when I said, okay, I want to hit this big goal of, you know, $11, $12 million in revenue that I went out and sought people that were of the same uh, intellectual level as me and brought them on to be, you know, executives and leaders in the company, right? Uh, I would say, you know, doing it over again, I think that having a co-founder is a lot, is a better approach um, if your co-founder is at, of the same intellectual capacity as you and of the same work ethic as you. And, you know, I'm a big fan of partnership. Um, you know, I learned this the hard way, so, you know, don't do that. But I think that people have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, nobody's strong at everything. Nobody's great at everything. Uh, and I think that's for a reason. I think that's because people are meant to be brought together in at least pairs and sometimes more than pairs. And the idea is that, you know, if you bring two people together who have different strengths and weaknesses, hopefully um, as a unit, they are more complete and they can get a lot further, right? So I think partnership's huge. I think when you don't have a co-founder, it makes things infinitely harder. Um, you know, when you're having those, those, those long days where things just aren't working or you're having those like strategy sessions, you know, having somebody there that's at the same intellectual level as you, um, you can talk it out with and just figure things out. You know, sometimes you can feed off each other's energy when you're trying to figure things out. Uh, that becomes huge and you move a lot quicker, right? So I, um, you know, there's a reason that venture capitalists are hesitant to fund solo founders, right? You know, these guys are professional investors. Uh, you know, they've seen it all, right? And, you know, if they don't want to put money into solo founders, it's probably a reason why. And, you know, it's because it's a lot harder, right? And, you know, there's more accountability when you have a co-founder, right? Like if you've got the right person, you guys are going to hold each other accountable and you'll go further faster. And take it from me, I did it the wrong way. Yeah, I had a question as well. Is this, um, you know, as a underrepresented founder, you know, just coming up, I know that there wasn't, you know, back when you was really building your startup, there wasn't like a, such a big ecosystem, specifically for like, you know, entrepreneurs of color, um, you know, women um, entrepreneurs as well. Like, what was what was that process like for you and um like like currently for you you know what I'm saying in regards to kind of growing your business as you know you know somebody that's underrepresented in technology yeah so you know my perspective on that's probably a lot different than other people um you know it was a situation that was out of my control right like i couldn't change it so i just tried to play the hand i was dealt as best i could right um so with that being said um, you know, I recognize that there were not a lot of minority founders, um, a lot of minorities in the startup community in Atlanta. Um, so I went out and sought out people and organizations who were doing what I was doing, but they might not necessarily be minority, right? So I started with just trying to surround myself with the right people. Um, and then, you know, kind of going from there. So. I end up having to be accept, more accepting of other cultures, different types of people and things of that nature. And I learned a lot through that process. I wouldn't change it at all. Uh, but you know, you do find that there are, there are times where, um, you know, you, you just don't necessarily fit in or, you know, things are just a little bit different, right? But 
you know, I think I learned how to adapt to different environments with different types of people. And I think overall, it was a really great experience because I learned a lot more. Um, there are things that people do in other cultures. There are other relationships that they have that we don't have in our community that those things become um, very, very, very beneficial down the road, right? The ecosystem for minorities or disadvantaged entrepreneurs is stronger. I mean, it exists now, period, which is a great thing, but it's stronger, it's more vibrant. So, you know, I am um, trying to participate in that more now, but I also tell entrepreneurs as well, like, you know, just be mindful, your customers aren't gonna all look like you, right? So you should be comfortable um, interacting with people and build relationships with people that don't have the same background as you, right? Um, there's a saying, I think you and I talked about it, Justin, you know, it's this, this concept of getting comfortable being uncomfortable, right? So you should embrace that and um, be in situations, environments, and in groups of people where you are comfortable because that is when you will learn the most, period, hands down. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back to the Basics, powered by Thrive. Be sure to subscribe, follow, and share this show with your fellow first-time founders. You can find this episode along with resources and tools discussed at squareoneschool.com backslash content. And for our next episode, stay tuned as we talk to Durante Lucas, the head of finance at Atlanta Ventures, as we uncover the financial side of running a startup. See you soon.